and bring life to us again. So if you are uh, wanting just maybe to open your Bible while I intro this, we're going to be carrying on in uh, our series in the book of Mark. We'll be in chapter 5, uh, looking at the touch of Jesus. And uh, <clears throat> I think one of the things for us, just by way of intro, that might be frustrating us as South Africans is uh, our favorite phrase, load shedding. Uh, it's become a, a frustration, and uh, it's always a mission to deal with life when it happens. It always comes on, happens at an inconvenient time. Every now and then the power will go off and come back on when it's supposed to, but it often doesn't, and you're left in the dark. And uh, I think the parents can attest that just what a mission doing the whole dinner, bath, and bedtime routine is without power. And uh, it's just a mission. It gets in the way of everything. And uh, there was a moment this week where I found myself sitting in the dark, just waiting for something to change. Uh, you know, come on, man, we've got some sort of lights and the batteries were dead, we didn't charge them, uh, there's no internet, you're sort of just sitting there like, oh, what do you do? <laughs> sitting in the dark, waiting for things to change. And I think uh, as I was prepping this, that's where my mind went, because for so uh, many of us, there are seasons in our life where it feels like we are just sitting in the dark, waiting for things to change, waiting for the light to come back on, waiting for some kind of breakthrough. In the tough situations, in the brokenness of life, in the, just the sin in us around us, the brokenness of the world, sometimes it just feels like we're just being overwhelmingly oppressed by the darkness. And it's in this Jesus has some encouragement for us. And so where can we find our hope? When there is hurt in our hearts, where things are falling apart around us, where we're carrying pain and depression and anxiety, where, when we're even mourning the loss of someone we loved, maybe even just the brokenness of physical suffering, where can we find hope? These are not theoretical things. These are real things we carry. And if we're not suffering, we know someone who is. We know someone who is. And so Jesus' word to us today is so encouraging. Is what, what he wants us to say is we don't need to be afraid. We don't need to fear. We can rest in his kindness to us in these moments. He doesn't always come through in the way we expect. But he promises himself, his presence, and he is working for our good and his glory. And he will come restore all things one day. But today we have access to his power that he can really get involved and change everything in an instant. And that is some of what God is saying to us today. So would you be open, open with me to Mark chapter 5. We're going to be looking from verse 21 to 43. And uh, just to give us some immediate context, uh, Jesus has just finished healing a demon-possessed man on the other side of the water. And uh, he's now crossing back over to the other side of the water, to the Jewish side uh, of the stream. And um, this is where we pick things up. So from verse 21, it'll be on the screens as well. It says this. When Jesus had crossed over again by boat to the other side, a large crowd gathered around him while he was by the sea. One of the synagogue leaders named Jairus came. And when he saw Jesus, he fell at his feet. And begged him earnestly, my little daughter is dying. Come and lay your hands on her so that she can get well and live. So Jesus went with him. And a large crowd was following him and pressing against him. Now a woman suffering from bleeding for 12 years 
had endured much under many doctors. She had spent everything she had and was not helped at all. On the contrary, she became worse. Having heard about Jesus, she came up behind him in the crowd and touched his clothing. For she said, if I just touch his clothes, I'll be made well. Instantly, her flow of blood ceased, and she sensed in her body that she was healed of her affliction. Immediately, Jesus realized that power had gone out from him. He turned around in the crowd and said, who touched my clothes? His disciples said to him, you see the crowd pressing against you, and yet you say, who touched me? But he was looking around to see who had done this. The woman with fear and trembling, knowing what had happened to her, came and fell before him and told him the whole truth. Daughter, he said to her, your faith has saved you. Go in peace and be healed from your affliction. While he was still speaking, people came from the synagogue leader's house and said, your daughter is dead. Why bother the teacher anymore? When Jesus overheard what was said, he told the synagogue leader, don't be afraid, only believe. He did not let anyone accompany him except Peter, James, and John, James's brother. They came to the leader's house and he saw a commotion, people weeping and wailing loudly. He went in and said to them, why are you making a commotion and weeping? The child is not dead, but asleep. They laughed at him, but he put them all outside. He took the child's father and mother and those who were with him and entered the place where the child was. Then he took the child by the hand and said to her, Talitha kumi, which is translated, little girl, I say to you, get up. Immediately the girl got up and began to walk. She was 12 years old. At this they were utterly astounded. Then he gave them strict orders that no one should know about this and told them to give her something to eat. It's this amazing account in Scripture, isn't it? It's amazing, and we believe that this really did happen. This isn't a fable, it's not made up. And what's been going on in the book of Mark for the last couple of accounts, Jesus is doing something in the life of his disciples and teaching them and us something. And this sort of section, you could argue, started with what Mick preached about a month ago now about how Jesus is the light of the world and his kingdom is like a seed. And he has authority and power to grow his kingdom. Uh, and he has authority in, in his grace to work towards people, to grow his kingdom, to bring them into the kingdom, to grow what he is doing in the lives of people. And, and to sort of teach his disciples some of this, there's some moments uh, in, in the following uh, accounts. He, he uh, stills the storm, that he is a sovereign God over creation. He casts out demon from a demon-possessed man. He is sovereign over even the spiritual realm. And today we're seeing that Jesus is compassionate and sovereign and powerful even over the distress of a father, the disease of a woman, and even death. And he is powerful over all things. He's showing them that there is nothing so big that it can stump Jesus. That in all of this, in all the brokenness, he works towards us in grace and kindness and mercy. And uh, this has sort of been constructed in a, in a very interesting way, that how the, there's sort of a, a story within a story. Uh, this is known as a Markin sandwich. 
And you'll see that there are, are certain things that um, sort of are tied together. You'll see that both um, the little girl and the woman bleeding, uh, there's a number of 12 years. She had been suffering for 12 years. The little girl was 12 years old. Uh, both uh, the times Jesus moves to, to heal, he gets ridiculed. Uh, when he says, who touched me? The disciples are like, well, that's a ridiculous question. Who touched me? You're in the middle of a crowd. Everyone's touching you. Jesus gets ridiculed. And when he says to the little girl, no, she's only sleeping, everyone laughs at him. Jesus gets ridiculed. Both the woman bleeding and the, and the girl who was dead are, are kind of unclean and defiled uh, in, in a cultural way, which I'll explain a bit later. Jesus calls both of them daughters. And so you see so, there are some differences, but there's so much overlap going on here. And it's like there's a case being made about what Jesus can do and is and what kind of situation he works towards. There's a point being driven home here. And it's very clear that Mark is trying to help us understand. And Jesus, through what he's doing in the lives of these two people, is helping us understand that in our, um, in our case of desperation and need, he moves towards us in grace often with healing power, and I want us to really raise our faith for that this morning, but also in the midst of a father's distress, he just moves towards him in kindness to restore his heart and to be with him. And Jesus comes to meet them in their pain, in their crisis, in their confusion. And what they're doing here is seeking the touch of Jesus. And with something about the touch of Jesus, that changes everything. Suddenly, Jesus gets involved in a situation where there was no hope. Suddenly, Jesus gets involved, and there is hope, and there is restoration, and there is healing, and hearts are changed, and lives are changed, and there is healing. Things are changed, and he brings restoration. The touch of Jesus changes everything. And so this morning, we're going to be looking at four ways the touch of Christ uh, changes us. The four things that the touch of Christ uh, comes to, and we're going to be just, if you're taking notes, that the touch of Jesus comes to the desperate, the unclean, the unworthy, and the broken. And we're just going to be unpacking these stories in a multiple different ways under these headings. So we'll start off with how the touch of Jesus comes to the desperate. These are situations of desperation here. Jairus, the synagogue leader, we're told, uh, he, he's one of the leaders in the synagogue, sort of like an elder. And um, he, he sees Jesus in the crowd and he breaks through the crowd and comes straight to Jesus and says, Jesus, my daughter is dying. Please come with me. I cannot un like imagine the desperation of this father seeing and watching his daughter slowly slip away into death. Some of you know the pain of losing a loved one. You'll know some of what this might feel like. Slowly watching someone slip away into death. There is desperation in his heart. And he's making a choice here. Rather than just resigning himself to the cruelty of the world and the brokenness of life, he's choosing to run to Jesus in his need and rely on the grace of God to meet him in his time of crisis. I think we've got to understand that this is a huge act of humility for Jairus. He, he is a, a well-known synagogue leader, it says. 
So he would have been uh, teaching on the Sabbath. He would have been upfront. He would have been well known in the community. It's highly likely that he wasn't a full-time staffed synagogue leader. That he's actually a marketplace leader. So he had sort of respect on both sides, and people uh, trusted in his authority over them. And when you're in that kind of place of leadership, the temptation is to guard your reputation and the way people see you closely. And you see what he's doing here is that he doesn't care about what people are thinking to him. He runs, falls at the feet of a rabbi and begs him, please come with me to heal my daughter. I desperately need your touch, Jesus. Without you, I have no hope. Maybe Jesus, maybe Jesus can do it. I have no other hope. There is nothing no one can do. Maybe Jesus. I've heard the stories of his healing miracle power. Maybe he can get involved and change everything. Jesus meets him in his desperation. We see this as well with the woman. We're told that she's been suffering for 12 years. We're not exactly sure what her condition was. But some say it could have been some sort of uterine cysts or some sort of hemorrhaging. But it's clear that it has caused her enormous pain physically, emotionally. Mentally, in every way, she is carrying pain with her. No doubt suffering from chronic anemia. It's clear that the multiplying effect of this illness has taken its toll on her, and she's reached her breaking point. She's got no other options. Text tells her that she suffered much under many doctors. These would have been quack sort of doctors who told her to eat this and sniff that and have a have a slip of this, and obviously it's done nothing. It says, in fact, she's got worse. The final blow comes later on. It tells us, verse 26, that she spent everything she had and was not helped at all. On the contrary, she became worse. So not only is she declining in health and her body is decaying and corrupting more and more, she's also now in utter poverty. It would seem she's got no hope left. She's absolutely desperate. And so in one last effort, she comes and says, if I just touch Jesus, I'll be made well. It's amazing how Jesus moves towards these people. In their time of need, in their desperation, Jesus meets them in his need. There's something so important for us to hear this morning, that we're not all in this time of need, maybe at the moment, maybe you are, Maybe you know someone who is. To just take a moment to consider the heart of Jesus in your desperation and brokenness. The heart of Jesus is always to move towards you. He's not put off. He's not uh, laughing at your pain. He's not apathetic. He sees. He knows. He loves. And his compassion moves him towards you. To meet you where you're at. It might be physical, it might be relational, it might be emotional, it might be financial. It could even be spiritual. Jesus' heart is for you. He is working for your good. He is wise and knows just what we need. And there's, there's something about the desperation that we see in the Jairus uh, uh, and the woman that is just so helpful for us. Uh, and, it's, and it's that both of them fall at the feet of Jesus. 
It says that Jairus uh, saw Jesus, saw him in the crowd, ran towards him, fell at his feet and begged him, please come with me to heal my daughter. The, the bleeding woman, uh, when Jesus asked who touched me, she came and fell at his feet and confessed the whole truth. There's something about falling at the feet of Jesus to admit that I have got nothing going on for me. I am in desperate need. I am desperately broken. I desperately need your grace, God. And this act of desperation in some way is sort of like a, in their situations, they're just carrying this pain so heavily on their heart that they've just lost their strength. They just have to get low and lie down on his feet. And it's a good thing to hear because we can rest at the feet of Jesus. It's also a sign of their worship and their faith. They're coming to him and saying, I actually trust you that you can maybe change things, God. And that's exactly what happens. He gets involved to meet them in their time of need. Jesus doesn't leave them in the dust. He doesn't leave them lying down. He restores, he comforts, he strengthens. He moves towards them in their desperation and brokenness as they run towards him. The second thing we see here is the touch of Jesus comes to the unclean. I think we know uh, the physical suffering of the woman bleeding, but there's so many other layers to what's going on in her life. And it's really important for us to get this, that she wasn't only physically suffering, her physical illness has brought on social and spiritual aspects as well. See, in her day, this sort of bleeding condition would have rendered her unclean. And so she would have been rejected and sort of treated like a leper. She, she would have been thought to be contagious. You weren't allowed to get near to this woman. Otherwise, you would become unclean as well. So she lived in isolation. We think a couple months of quarantine is, is tough work. Can you imagine 12 years of quarantine? 12 years of not even being touched. Utterly rejected. Utterly avoided. No doubt she's carrying deep shame. No doubt her self-worth is plummeting every day. Not only that, spiritually she's rejected as well. She wouldn't have been able to go to the temple and participate in, in worship with God's people because she was unclean. So in every way, the totality of this illness has defined her life. She is absolutely unclean. Clearly, um, in the, la in the case of the little girl, uh, one of the words we might want to swap out for unclean might be the word defiled. And there is some, there's nothing more defiling than death. There's something that it's not the way God meant it to be. In heaven we'll know life as God intended it to be, but there's something about the corruption of death that steals God's intention for life in us and for us. That there's defilement for her as well. So what does Jesus do? He gets involved, he moves towards, he pours out grace, he affirms, he recognizes, he sees, he loves. Jesus is not grossed out by the woman's blood. He's not avoiding the girl's death. He, he can handle their mess, he can handle our mess. He doesn't respond with disgust or fear. He responds in compassion and his heart moves towards us. He isn't grossed out by our mess in, mess in any way. He moves towards our compassion. And 
I just want us to get this for a moment because this, this is a, a case of, of physical healing, but I want us to see the spiritual aspect of this as well because it's a picture of what the gospel is. It's a picture of how Christ works. That in our hearts, we're all sinful. We're all unclean. There is no one holy, no, not one. And yet what Christ does, ironically, rather than avoiding our dirtiness, our mess, rather than avoiding our uncleanness, he takes it onto himself on the cross and becomes unclean himself, becomes defiled himself, becomes messy himself in order to make us clean. And, and you know, we know the beauty of forgiveness. We've heard about the beauty of righteousness. There, there's a word that comes on throughout the scriptures and it, it talks about how we've been cleansed of our sin that we've been washed and purified. You're white as snow. I think that's part of the reason why baptism is such a beautiful picture of what happens to us when we become Christian, that we get dunked under the water and come up. You've been washed. It's what's, what God has done on the inside. And just by a sidebar, we're going to do a baptism service sometime in the next couple of months, maybe when it gets a bit warmer. And I'd love to encourage you guys, if you haven't been baptized, to take that step. It's a beautiful picture of what happens to us when we become his children. He washes the unclean. The third thing the touch of Jesus comes to is the unworthy. This is so encouraging for my heart. We see this to a lesser extent with Jairus and a greater extent with the woman bleeding. But let's start with Jairus. It says that, um, Jairus' needs get in, interrupted. He's come to Jesus in his desperation and brokenness, not knowing what to do, just in despair. His daughter's dying. Jesus says, all right, I'm going to come with you. He comes with him. And it, it would seem that this woman's need now is just completely taken over and Jairus has been forgotten. Uh, I, I can just sort of imagine What's going on in his heart is the, the despair just slowly overtakes his heart. He's just losing hope quickly. And the anxiety of Jesus, come hurry up, man. We need to get to my house. Come on, come on. It just slowly slip away into absolute hopelessness. Until the, the blow comes at verse 35. It says, people came from the synagogue leader's house and said to him, your daughter is dead. Don't bother the teacher anymore. I can probably think of a few ways they could have broken the news a bit better than that. But that's what they've done. And yet, what does Jesus do? While Jairus is saying, I clearly wasn't worth his time. I clearly wasn't worth his grace. I clearly wasn't worth his healing and his presence. And his power was made for someone else, but not me. Jesus looks him in the eye. Verse 36, he says, When Jesus overheard what was said, he told the synagogue, he told Jairus, looked him in the eye, don't be afraid, only believe. It takes a moment to affirm him. I'm still working. My timing is perfect. In your accounts, my timing was terrible and I failed you in every way. And you felt like you, uh, you were unworth, uh, unworthy of me. But Jesus is taking a moment just to uh, affirm him and say, no, I'm still moving towards you. Maybe not in the way you expected, but I'm still moving towards you in grace. My power is still with you. I'm still coming to your home today. I'm not going to abandon you. 
Do not be afraid. Only believe. Don't feel overlooked when I'm the one standing in your house right now and I can do great things. This is even more intense with the woman bleeding. She's tried everything else to find a cure. She's heard the stories about Jesus' miracles and she says, why not? I've got no other option left. Let me go and touch his clothes. And she has faith and she gets healed. This is incredible. It says, verse 39, that she could feel instantly that she was healed. So what happens next in the story? Jesus turns around, verse 30, and says, who touched me? And you know, he could feel that power left him. That's what the, the scripture says, that the power left him. This was sort of like a load-shedding moment for Jesus. And it's uh, the first time in the book of Mark that we hear the word dunamis. It's a Greek word that we get uh, the word dynamite from. It means power. It's the most intense form of Jesus' like power that we see in scriptures. Power had left him, extreme power. We can see how this woman responds. Who touched me? Verse 33, it says, The woman came with fear and trembling. Knowing what had happened to her, she came and fell down before Jesus and told him the whole truth. She's afraid. She thinks she's done something wrong. And you know what? In every cultural way she had, when you are unclean, ceremonially unclean like, it, like she was in this day and age, you wouldn't dare come and touch anyone else, let alone a rabbi. So she knows she's at fault here. She, 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 she knows in her heart that what she's done is a big mistake and I should have never come. So she falls down at his feet and is like begging Jesus, please take mercy on me. You know what her biggest mistake was? You know what our biggest mistake is when we read this account? Is that we read those words, who touched me, as if Jesus is saying it with anger. Who touched me? How dare you? That's not at all what's going on. It's a tender who touched me. He's not saying it so that he can, he's not asking the question so that he can scold her. He's asking the question so that he can heal her and affirm her. Jesus already knew who touched him. He, didn't, he wasn't asking that question. He, he wanted, the reason he asked the question, who touched me, is because he wanted an encounter with this woman. He wanted a moment to look her in the eye and affirm her. You see what Jesus does next. Verse 34, in her fear, he looks her in the eye and says, Daughter, your faith has saved you. Go in peace and be healed from your affliction. Jesus calls her daughter. He recognizes her. He sees her. He calls her daughter. Just the grace that Jesus has in that moment, knowing all of her brokenness, not just the, the, the physical, but the social, the spiritual, that she is broken in every way. He takes a moment to piece her back together by affirming her, the God of all creation, saying, daughter. I can imagine how those words changed her life forever. In an instant, publicly, the God of heaven is affirming her. And socially, that would have had impacts. People would have recognized what had happened. She, she would have started being treated like a human again. But more importantly, vertically, she is getting affirmed as a daughter of the king. And that's what we need more than anything. 
Here she is feeling utterly unworthy of the grace of God. And what Jesus does is affirm her and takes a moment to say, no, my grace is for you. You. It's for you. I think this has been so helpful for me over the years to just understand that the grace is exactly for those who know they don't deserve it. And I've Just to share, like, I think a thing that God has revealed to me as I've journeyed as a Christian is that in my sort of early teen years and a bit younger, there were several things that happened in my life where I didn't quite measure up. I was always trying hard to, to achieve something, and I didn't quite get there. Uh, things that were my idols at the time, and I built my life around them, and my whole world fell apart. And so this has created in me some kind of deep sense of inadequacy that I still struggle with in many ways. And so I've carried this in some ways into my spiritual journey, where I've never felt quite good enough for grace. I've always felt like I have to achieve maybe or be good enough or make the cut or, or earn grace. Or I go in the opposite direction and just assume I'll, I'll, I'll never receive it because I can't. I've done too many bad things. I'm totally unworthy. You know the grace of God in those moments, he, he'll look me in the eyes, he'll look us in the eyes and say, you know what, and this is where he starts, you're right. You'll never be good enough for my grace because you can't earn it. But here's the gospel, I earned it for you. It calls me son, it calls you daughter. It says, come home. In spite of what you've done, in spite of who you are, in spite of your suffering, there is nothing you can do that can overshadow the grace that is in me for you. So he pours out grace. There's something so amazing in here. If you've noticed that we, we hear the name of Jairus, we don't hear the name of the woman. And part of that is because Jairus was powerful and well-known. He was a synagogue leader. He was well-known. Everyone knew Jairus. No one knew this woman. Yet Jesus pauses and doesn't go straight to, the, to Jairus' house. He doesn't prioritize him. He pauses and prioritizes the marginalized, unknown and unworthy woman who everyone had rejected. That's who Jesus prioritizes in this text. He puts everything, puts everything on hold to give her his full-time attention. I think he's making the point very clear for you and for me that the grace does not come to the worthy. It does not come to the powerful. It does not come to the good enough. It does not come to those who think they deserve it. It doesn't come to the respected. Grace is for those who know they don't deserve it. Grace is for the unworthy. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. We can come to him relying on his mercy, not our merits, to receive grace. Grace is for the unworthy. Last thing, the touch of Jesus comes to the broken. It's an amazing thing about this text is that the broken people are healed. This is physical healing. I know we've spoken about the more emotional and, and spiritual and uh, social aspects. Here we're talking about the physical healing, the most apparent thing that happens in the text. And I want us to get this and really believe this because it just is so startling to our modern minds that we cannot fathom a miracle like this as possible. But it really happened. Let's look at the little girl. Time has passed. Jairus has long but given up hope that Jesus is going to come heal his daughter. The crowd has come and told 
Jairus that his, his daughter has passed away. And so they continue on the journey home. I'm sure Jairus is just enjoying the presence of Jesus at that moment. But he's crying, no doubt. and He's given up every bit of hope. So what does Jesus do? He looks at him and says, don't be afraid. Only believe. He tells the crowd, no, she's only sleeping. They all laugh at him. So he goes into the room with a few people. Verse 41 and 42 says this. He took the, the child by the hand and said to her, Talitha Kumi, which is translated, little girl, I say to you, get up. And immediately she got up and began to walk. It's just the healing power of Jesus. Like, can we take a moment just to consider how incredible this is? It's not only uh, the, two, the two things I want us to see are one, Jesus' tenderness, and one is power. When he says Talitha Kumi, a modern translation would be something like, sweetheart, it's time to wake up. Or, or like, honey, come, wake up. It's a, it's a tender heart. It's, it's a father talking to his child. He calls her daughter. But his power is incredible here. He raises her from the dead, and in an instant, he undoes the power of decay. He restores her breath. She gets up as if nothing had ever gone wrong. See, Jesus has the power to raise people from the dead just with a word. He calms the storm with a word. He drives out demons with a word. And he heals with just a word. Raises her up with just a word. This is the power of God. Likewise with the woman bleeding. She just touches his clothes. And she's healed. There is power in the blood of the Lamb. There is power in Jesus. Now, look, I know when we speak about healing today, it becomes very weird very quickly. And people have abused this thing and, and taken it a whole other place. We, we, don't, we don't think it's biblical. The response to that isn't by saying, oh, clearly that's not for today, and then disbelieving in the power of Jesus to heal. I want to call us today. Let's lift our faith to the level of Scripture. Lift our faith to the level of the Bible. He is still active and working today and can do this with just a word. He's abounding in love. He's compassionate. He's merciful. He's gracious. He is powerful. So just as we close today, I just want to end with this question. There's two accounts here of people receiving the grace of Jesus. Jairus, the distressed father in despair, gets put back together and his daughter's raised from the dead. And a woman suffering for 12 years is healed in an instant. The text says that there was a crowd. Why only two? Why only two? I, I, I want to just illustrate this by, by two words. And there's two ways we can approach Jesus, either as a spectator or a seeker. Seekers get the grace of God. Spectators watch what God does in everyone else's lives. And the crowd was no doubt amazed at his miracles, wanted to be near the action, but weren't seeking him, had no faith in him. We're just there for the vibes and the good times. We can even come to church like that, a spectator. We can even read a Bible as a spectator. We can do lots of Christian things as spectators. But when we seek the heart of Jesus, something changes. He meets us in grace. 
even this morning, I really believe this. He will meet us in his grace. Uh, and I just want to, to make this abundantly clear. It's not about the amount of faith you're bringing to the table. It's the direction of your faith. Is your faith in Christ. That's where his grace uh, resides. That's where grace comes from. Uh, and this morning, just as we respond, I just want to ask us to respond by seeking the touch of Jesus again. It's something amazing about the touch of Jesus that um, you see it again in, in Jairus. He says, come lay hands on my daughter that she might be healed. Uh, and the woman bleeding knew that she had to touch Jesus in order to be healed. There is something about the touch of Jesus that changes everything. And I really want to encourage us this morning as we seek him, as we respond now, to seek out, to reach out and touch Jesus. He can do great things in our lives in every way. He knows your need. He knows your desperation. He knows right now what grace for you looks like. And he says, my grace is